The and first part didn't because the first part wasn't in a newspaper. No, it was the Washington Post. So yeah. mine also started with these Washington Post strips. Okay. But what mine did is that I don't think it did days and weekends split up this way or maybe. Oh. It did. I was a little confused because I felt like the story read pretty linear, even though the weeklies and dailies are, were all kind of like the dailies and weekends were all sort of seemed like mishmashed. I yeah, still sort of read the stories in order. Maybe that means it's a good example of newspaper comics. Yeah? Maybe. Maybe. Oh, what? No. Good newspaper <laughs> comics. Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Today's book is Cul-de-Sac, This Exit by Richard Thompson. Uh, and maybe before we say anything else, we should talk about the fact that there are various editions of Cul-de-Sac, <laughs> and they're all good, but um, they, whether or not you have picked the right one to read is entirely up in the air. Yeah, so uh, John actually bought me a copy of this book for my birthday a while ago, and I read it, and it's called The Golden Treasury of Cul-de-Sac or something. And then he's like, oh, let's do cul-de-sac for this book. And I'm like, great. I don't think it's going to be this one that you're recommending. It's not this exit. It's some kind of best of. And he's like, oh, well, uh, blah. And I'm like, that's okay. I don't mind. I'll just buy it. So I went on Comixology, and I found what I, I, I guess I didn't read the email or write it down, but I found the complete cul-de-sac, volume one. And there are two books. I believe this. there are three. Amazon has three. But oh, wow. it, they may have divided it up differently. I don't know. Oh, I'm not on. I'm not on the web right now. Okay. So uh, anyway, I think I read all the strips that are in your book because mine are mine's 300 pages. Mm -hmm. So, but if I hit on something that's not in the book, I apologize. Well, I think because it's a newspaper comic, what we talk about will be sort of general to the series, and I think we'll be okay. Um, but we'll see. We'll yeah, see. I've already noticed one difference that I will speak to later on, but. The complete cul-de-sac, if you're interested in finding cul-de-sac and are hemming and hawing over which version, the complete cul-de-sac volume one has Richard Thompson's commentary under selected strips, which was a treasure, and I will treasure it always and highly <laughs> recommend it. You can share some of that I commentary will. with us. Okay. So, indeed. So before we go any further into this book, we should do a character-revealing question because you may or may not know who we are. Uh, if you don't, we've got a whole lot of other episodes you should also listen to. But anyways, uh, today's character revealing question is going to be, what is your worst experience of suburbia? Not all of us, I don't think, have actually lived in the suburbs necessarily, but I think we've all been to the suburbs. So all tell right. me the I, Yeah, here, I, I... I feel like I embarrassingly don't actually really understand what suburbs are. Okay. Oh, well... I think the definition has been sort of my, fluid over the Like, decades. is it just like a neighborhood that's like nowhere near the downtown. You yeah, kind of have to like yeah. drive to get anywhere. Okay, okay. Basically. It's, it's, it's where you live and then drive into work. Okay, okay. So, my experience with... Who are you, by the way? Oh, sorry. Yes. This is how we start these, by the <laughs> way. Uh, so, I'm Jeff Ellis, and I've always grown up in Vancouver proper, uh, so I haven't had a lot of exposure to suburbia, uh, but I did spend a week in Barrie, Ontario... Uh, oh, good with, old Barry. <laughs> with a uh, a person I was dating at the time, and my takeaway from that is that Barry, Ontario, is a terrible place. Oh, and, this is so rude and um, <laughs> And 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 just suburbs in general are just terrible things. Uh, we could not go anywhere without a car. Like it was not even feasible to cross a street because it was a highway, and you needed a car to get from the shop over here to the shop over there. It was ridiculous. Uh, I hate the suburbs, and I hate Barrie, Ontario. Barrie, Ontario is fine. <laughs> <laughs> from, a, from a different point of view, we have Kay Gross. <laughs> yes, I'm Kay Gross, and I have driven through Barrie many, many, many times. Probably, like, a billion times. Um, I'm so sorry. It's fine. I love rural Ontario so much. Um, I, uh, don't think I have experience with suburbs, um, cause, like, I grew up in, like, real Toronto, 
And <laughs> well, I didn't like grow up in Milton. You know, people from Milton will be like, "You grew up in Toronto." No, you didn't. You grew up in Milton. Um, so you made a lot of friends in Barrie and a lot of enemies in Milton just now. <laughs> yeah, Barrie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in a neighborhood in Toronto, and then uh, I've always lived in the city here, I guess, sort of. Uh, so the suburbs are probably fine, I don't know. <laughs> My coworker commutes in from very, very far away, and uh, it's always very interesting. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to be on the highway, sorry. I don't even drive. I don't know why I'm getting upset. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll go next. It, it's funny because you asked this question, it's like, what's the worst part of suburbia? I did grow up in suburbia. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Montreal, uh, was known as the West Island, which is the Anglo part of Montreal. And although I don't necessarily look upon that time fondly, and I would never ever move back to the suburbs again, when you, maybe it's an effect of reading this work when you mention that, all I had were happy memories of like biking to the pool and building tree forts and having my friends all near me and walking down to the corner park and how it would freeze over in the winter and we'd have a little skating pond and... Oh, man. So, actually, later in life, though, after I moved to the city out here, and then I moved up to Lynn Valley, which is also kind of a suburb, but it's a very different flavor of suburb up here. So, my worst memory is how it would snow. We were, like, two meters above the snow line (laughs) in elevation. So, literally, you would go through all of Vancouver, there'd be no snow. You go through all of North Van, there'd be no snow. And then you drive up our road... And then you hit a line that's like two houses down from what my house was, and there would be a meter of snow. <laughs> and and uh, we were just house-sitting. We were just poor refugees who had just graduated university, and I didn't have a shovel. And then the mailman like wrote me angry letters because I didn't shovel my walk in time. And you had to like take the garbage out to the corner on like a certain day. And it had to be done by 7 a.m. And, like, if you didn't, then you wouldn't take away your garbage for the week. Anyway, I hated that part of it. But when I was a kid, it was great. (laughs) When someone else did everything for me, it was fine. Uh, Okay. Uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton, and I have spent far too much of my life in the suburbs. In fact, I still live in a suburb, much to my chagrin. So, like, shout out to Abbotsford. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I would say the worst suburb I've ever lived in was Oakville, Ontario. (laughs) I also don't hate Oakville! I don't know what your problem is! You didn't have to live there. That's true. I would not live if I lived in Oakville, Ontario. Sorry, Oakville. Like, I had to... I didn't own a car, which is the problem. If I'd owned a car, it would be a completely different situation. But in order to buy groceries, I had to cross a highway. And you can't just cross the the QEW. You have to, like, go, like, blocks and blocks and then find an underpass, like, like covered in graffiti, and, like, there's nobody there. And then, like, walk blocks and blocks until you're at the exact same distance you were where you started, except now you're on the other side of the highway. Buy groceries, and I think I ended up taking a bus part of the way back, but the bus, buses only went half an hour, like, every half hour, oh, and they didn't awful. go all the way. And it was awful. And I hated the people whose house I was living in. They were the worst people in the world. Um, (laughs) And the upside is the last two months I lived in Ontario, I got to live in real Toronto. It was fantastic. Toronto is great. But suburban, like the suburbs around Toronto, garbage. (laughs) Yeah. And I say that because uh, in the context that the two months I lived in Toronto was during a garbage strike. Still better than living in Oakville. Oh, Whoa. Wow. Oh, man. Hey, wow, wow. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I had said some hateful things about Barry, but... Okay. Struck Oakville. <laughs> Apparently, if you live in Oakville, you should move to Barry. <laughs> uh, maybe? I'm not, I can't confirm that. I haven't lived in Barry. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, just as a sort of a side note because of this question, uh, one of the interviews I was reading when I was looking up stuff about Richard Thompson was that he apparently doesn't hate the suburbs. He thinks the suburbs are great. Uh, but what he said that uh, you have to be able to make fun of the things you love. And I think that's where we get cul-de-sac, where it's, um, a, I would call it a very dark view of the suburbs with this... Um... I don't know, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I don't feel like it's dark. Okay, <laughs> maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe it's just what I'm putting, what I'm bringing to the table when I read this. Um, but I guess I should talk a little bit about Richard Thompson first. 
Okay, so he's he's an interesting, uh, or was an interesting guy. He actually died in uh, July of 2016, so not that long oh, ago. Oh, man. Very sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, how old was he? Uh, not, I'd have to do some math to figure it out. But did he suffer from? It was Parkinson's. Parkinson's. Oh. Yeah, which is like terrible. if you draw for a living, like that's it was one awful. of the worst well, things that Well, it's why he ended the strip. Yeah. The strip <sighs> actually only lasted eight years. So, and he, he started it really late. He was born in 1957, so I guess he's sort of on that line between the baby boomers and Generation X. No, not necessarily. He would have almost been 60. He would have been a boomer. Okay. Uh, my parents were 55 and they were boomers. Okay, okay. Grew up in a suburb of Washington, D.C. Uh, he was a professional illustrator for as much of his life as is recorded on the internet, doing illustrations for magazines and uh, covers and things like that. A lot of political cartoons and caricatures. And then at some point, someone talked him into doing a comic strip for the Washington Post magazine. So this is not for a newspaper. This is for like a a magazine associated with a newspaper. And that started in 2004. So he was already like in his 50s by this point. So he starts making comics in his 50s. Wow. And he only does this for eight years because then he contracts Parkinson's. But the quality of work he created in those eight years is astounding like this is such a good newspaper comic i don't it, it's it's up there with the best newspaper comics in history i would say um in fact the introduction the foreword to this book is from bill watterson who's mm-hmm. you know one of the greats if not oh, the I think, great i think i heard of a comic strip <laughs> that guy did uh. so that's something that my book was missing my really? word was by someone else. Oh, okay. interesting. So I might like someone to that. lesser. Yeah. Someone so not certainly not Bill Watterson. Okay. I think I'll pull some editor, nice like, the Washington Post or something. Okay. Quotes from that little Bill Watterson foreword. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I actually kind of regret having read that introduction because it is going to say it has said everything that I want to say only so much better. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, I left that until like I read the book and then I read the foreword and I was like, oh man, Bill Watterson, why, why do you have to sum it up so well? Um, <laughs> Like, the yeah. way he describes cul-de-sac is like, uh, these children and their struggles are presented affectionately, and one of the things I like best about cul-de-sac is its natural warmth. It avoids both mawkishness and cynicism, and instead finds genuine charm in its loopy appreciation of small events. Yeah, so I, I would say, like, the two things that really stood out... Are we ready to dive into this? Sure, yeah. The two things that really stood out to me about this work is, it's re- since it is a newspaper comic strip about children... It's really easy to compare it to other works like Calvin and Hobbes or Peanuts, which also feature a cast of children primarily. But compared to those two, these are the only ones that feel like real children to me. Hmm. Even though they also suffer, maybe not even suffer, but they have that affectation where they will be able to stand apart from their own experiences of childhood and take this kind of meta viewpoint of what's happening and say things that are beyond their years. They feel like children the way that they are uh, approaching the world, the way they interact with each other, the gestures that are drawn, they feel like kids to me. And the other thing is that it exudes so, so much warmth. So uh, in the commentary, Richard mentions, I didn't look up his biography, but he mentions an eldest daughter and a youngest daughter, so he has at least two daughters. And the amount of love that just pours forth from his experience of having raised daughters just shows so brightly in the portrayal of Alice and the family dynamic and family life. He obviously loves it so much. Yeah. Or did. Like, I sort of... I'm not sure I agree on your uh, interpretation of that trope in newspaper comics mm-hmm. where children play sort of an adult role. Their dialogue is very much more like what an adult will say. Uh, and I, I think the thing I like about that, and this happens in Calvin and Hobbes and it happens in Peanuts as well, is that children don't see themselves as on a different level than adults. They see the world around them, and they are at the the maximum level of cognition that they have ever been at when they're at that point. And they, I think they see themselves in the world the same way an adult sees themselves in the world, hmm. as like a fully functioning, like completely able to understand everything given the opportunity, that kind of thing. Uh, and I think that's that's sort of, at least that's my interpretation of why writers do that. But I also really, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying about these characters. They're so, they're so great. They feel very real. Yeah. And the expressions and the way he draws them, like, 
I don't know how to sum this up, but I scribbled something about, like, it feels like they, like, have seen and deeply know their own truth. Because there's <laughs> this, like, haunted but knowing look in their eyes. Um, and the way Petey. Oh, Petey Otterloop. <laughs> I could go on forever about how much I love Petey Otterloop. Like, I just... He's so anxious and, like... I guess I'm just, like, a very anxious and neurotic person, so I, like, deeply empathize and, like, relate to Petey Otterloop, but, like, every strip he's in cracks me up, and, like, he says weird things, but there's so obviously things that he deeply believes, like, there, he has this ongoing thing about zombies, and there's one strip where Alice is like, Daddy, tell me the story of Halloween, and her dad's like, well, there's not really a story, it just kind of is, and Petey's like, it's to placate the zombies, <laughs> and you know that he just, like, really believes it, and his dad's like, stop telling stories, like, don't, don't rile your sister up, but, like, and, like, I think the adults in the strip, or at least my interpretation is, like, they see it as that Petey's just kind of being, like, the older brother and riling her up. But, like, to me, I think that he really believes these things. And he's really deeply worried about it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. My favorite Petey Otterloop strip is one that he only appears in one panel. And it's um, page 43 in this exit. Uh, let me just find it. And it's the strip isn't even about him. It's about, like, Alice and her class went to the library to have this uh, author read to them and she's telling the story of how the day was to her parents and just in the last panel it pulls because all of those panels it doesn't pull out to see the full dinner table and you don't see Petey and then it pulls out to the full dinner table Petey has not contributed to the discussion in any way but he's turning away from the table towards the camera with the most like sickened look on his face <laughs> as if he has like just been poisoned and he's so upset by the food that he had to eat or at least that's my interpretation but it's so funny I don't know you have to read it but it's just like it just so sums up his character where these things are going around and he's just like so uh, upset and uncomfortable by them and doesn't really know how to process it I don't know I love Petey Otterloop um. I also yeah. like that everything we see of Alice's preschool, like the inside of the pe- preschool, feels very much like being inside a kindergarten, which I have spent some time in uh, as a teacher. And I have to say, like, yep, yep, this is well-researched material. <laughs> this is exactly what it's like. How do you feel about the ongoing joke about the childhood activities kind of just going off the rails and all the kids need to be put in the corner? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that is a big part of kindergarten is learning how to be uh, one of 20 plus kids in a classroom. And, you know, that's what you got to do. I'm trying to think. I can't remember the specific. I should have made more page number notes, but there was... (laughs) There's one where, like, the entire class was put in the corner, and one of them is saying, like, why does she keep putting out these activities? Because they always end up this way. Yeah, it's like, always new activities. Yeah, why do new things? Every time that woman tries to cram culture down our throats, this happens. Because yeah, <laughs> they had, uh, like, a musician come in and play guitar, and they're all in the our time out corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Um, the, yeah. yeah, the world he creates is quite good. I like that their neighborhood of cul-de-sac is essentially like a walled village. Like this tower of houses, like with a giant wall around it, shielding them from the highway that's next door. It's like a moat. It's described yeah. as a moat. And if the yeah. wall wasn't there, the, the cars would overflow the barrier yeah. and take over the town. Yeah, it's, it's I love it. And then just there's so many lovely little touches to the world, like like her father's car. That's such a funny, like, little like, recurring joke. He has yeah. this tiny, tiny little car that's like those, um, almost like, you know that, like, I- iconic, like, red and yellow little car that toddlers get into? It's kind of like that, and he has to, like, cram himself in every time, and yeah. there's one cute strip where Alice, uh, someone's asking Alice how, like, her dad driving her to school was, and it cuts to this panel where she's like, can we go into the classroom and drive donuts around Miss Bliss? And her, <laughs> then it cuts back, she's like, no, it was horrible. And Aww. you just know that her dad is like, no. <laughs> we can't do that. Yeah, so, yeah Alice, Alice is always trying to egg him on to, like, do donuts. <laughs> do donuts on the grass. We're driving on the grass, but do donuts. I, I like that they, they kind of carry this, this surrealness forward, too, because, I mean, it's drawn as this is like a clown car where he just couldn't physically fit inside this car. But then like, they also make commentary where like, you know, Alice says like, Oh, 
once he got it stuck on his foot and he walked around for like an hour before my mom told him, right? So it's sort of like they carry that forward that the dad is actually like walking around the house with his car stuck to his foot. Like. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting. So in, uh, in Richard's commentary, he speaks to how the car was one of his favorite things to draw, but he hated drawing the minivan and he was always complaining about drawing uh, vehicle interiors. So the commentary throughout the book is always like, oh man, this was an okay vehicle interior, or like, oh, but I love drawing this car. And uh, the other thing that he brings up repeatedly is a theory that he comes to say as tell, don't show, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. And so that strip in particular, where they told you about the time that he was walking around mm-hmm. the living room with it stuck to his foot, but they don't actually show it to you. Yeah. And so he brings this up a few times and how... You know, the major punchline, the major action is actually off panel or just referred to. And it's something that I've never seen done theoretically in a, in a comedic strip. It's always the yeah. other way around. And so it's really interesting. That's an interesting That's observation. Really interesting. Like I, well, it's Richard's. Do you, do you think, and like Angela, you know more about writing comedy comics than I do, mm. for sure. Uh, do you think that the reason that works is because it's a surprise that we expect it to be the other way around? No, I think it's because. Nothing, well, the way that Richard explains it, and I think it's true, nothing that he could have drawn is funnier than what you're imagining. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like maybe it's a similar principle to, like, don't show the monster, mm-hmm. where it's scarier when you don't see the monster, so something like that is funnier when you don't actually see it because your brain is just interpreting it yeah. however. Yeah. I mean, this is something I used to do a lot uh, when I was younger doing, uh, like, humor strips, and I was, like, in high school, I was doing, like, slapstick style strips and one of the things I realized is that it's like way more funny to draw that moment before the pie hits someone in the face or before someone like you know trips down a flight of stairs or whatever like it's that moment of anticipation and letting the reader kind of fill in the blanks where if you just show someone with like you know pile over their face already it's like it's funny but it's not as funny as like that pie flying towards them and like they're about to get hit by the pie. Okay. I found uh, I found a strip with a comment that illustrates it. So I don't know if this strip is in your book. It's on page 291. It's from August 2, 2009, and it's about fireflies. And so the punchline uh, is that Alice says, Don't catch lightning bugs anymore. Petey says they can go Nova. And then off panel, there's this giant word balloon that just says blink. <laughs> and the commentary says, I like having a big moment off screen. This is at the heart of my tell, don't show theory of comic writing and flows from my basic laziness as an artist. <laughs> <laughs> what does a Firefly Nova look like? You try drawing it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, you gotta, it, it's, it's, um, I think it's that he's choosing really surreal moments to talk about. And so it's, you know, in a way, like, it's funnier to imagine, like, this Firefly Nova or imagine the dad with the car stuck to his foot than to actually draw it. And I think, in a way, if you drew that, people would sort of reject that. They'd be like, well, no, no, well, that's weird. Like, you can't walk around with a car on your foot in the living room. Mm-hmm. And so if they saw that, I think they'd visually reject that, where they can accept that stylistically this is a tiny car and a big man in this comic world, and they can talk about that as something that's happening off-panel. But I think seeing it... Would be too much. I don't think that's strictly true because okay. this is a rule that Richard breaks all the time, right. as well. And he does. A, he, I think, he does an amazing job of show don't tell. Like he does these amazing uh, hyperbolic illustrations of like. So his illustrations of the cul-de-sac themselves are a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very hyperbolic kind of like tower of mm-hmm. houses and this moat, which is yeah. Uh, and his illustrations of the uh, the jungle gym. Right. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The tube slides. So they're very hyperbolic and bizarre and twisted. So those are a perfect example of show, don't tell. And so I think he wields them both. Mm. Yeah, like there's a comic I just came across here. There's um, This is the one where the kids are at this construction site and they're wondering where the dirt goes when they excavate <laughs> from a construction site. Mm. And uh, I think it's Dill who says, they take it away in dump trucks, but my brother has a theory that dirt remembers where it was no matter where they take it. Then it has this like five panel sequence of this ball of dirt like hovering in space moving through the air trying to find its home yeah. so that's that's definitely a show don't tell yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than a tell don't well, show that's true yeah, yeah, yeah. he does both I, so well yeah I mean I this is an ongoing thing with the kids that I just love and I think this is what contributes to that uh, authenticity of the children is these surreal 
narratives that they go through because they also have that whole thing about being like a, a grocery cart wrangler oh, right that. and it's so it's cute. it's just like this sort of childlike understanding of the world that like well there's this these grocery carts they have to be dealt with so well, there must is, be grocery cart wranglers Right. Grocery cart regular oh. is a real job. Like, you go around and you collect the grocery carts, and they have these, like... Wouldn't that just they ha- be... Yeah, they have, like, a golf cart, right? Oh. You can push, like, 200 of them at a time. Oh, okay. But what I took from that strip is, like, when we see that job, you're like, that's kind of a menial job. But when a kid sees that job, they're like, that's awesome! You I get really your own cart. be a grocery cart wrangler when I grow like, up. I did not know that was a real job. Have. I just yeah. imagined that would be the same clerk the, that rings yeah. through your orders, just like, go out in the parking lot and move some carts. No, 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 in suburbia. All right. <laughs> this is my lack of understanding line. of right. <laughs> yeah, they have like oh, that's true. A train of parking, uh, a train of carts like two hundred long that you have to might... navigate from like the other opposite side. Of right. The yeah, because that's true. The carts away. will be really far away. You can't yeah. just have mm-hmm. some, and especially in like say Barrie, Ontario, you'd freeze to death by the time you <laughs> got right. to the other end of the parking lot. <laughs> probably. Well, you might if you didn't dress properly for being in <laughs> Barrie, Ontario. Everyone you know, everyone knows you go outside with your snow pants on. Like <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Don't go to rural Ontario without your winter clothes. <laughs> and a shovel. But it was May. <laughs> yeah, no, AKA winter. Oh. No. Um, do we want to talk about the art a little yes, bit? Please. Oh, uh, it's beautiful. It's charming. And I, man, this is like so not how I ink, but so how I love seeing other people ink. Like it's this scratchy, blobby messy but somehow just totally comes together and like expressive and um like i i would be curious to see like what he inks with but i i love it it reminds me a little bit of oh god i'm gonna mess up the illustrator's first name but it's uh ronald searle i think is the name uh he did um he was a very uh, prolific british illustrator who sing Trinity's, I think, School for Girls? No? Okay. Anyways, comedic British illustrator was um, a prisoner of war uh, and, like, has a lot of war drawings, but also, like, this very comedic, like, um, strip for girls uh, Hmm. that this, like, reminds me of a little bit. Hmm. Um, Just that sort of, like, line quality and the messiness. In the, The, uh, in one of the documentaries, there were two documentaries that I saw that had stuff about Richard Thompson. One was stripped, which is, we, we can talk about that a little bit later too, but yeah, there was also like a, just a short 20-minute interview yeah, with that's him. that's the one I'm thinking Ooh. of. Okay. Uh, and in that one, it shows him actually at work, and the tools at least that were present in the, in the documentary were uh, dip pens and microns. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting to me in that uh, mini-doc that, I, I don't know if it has a name, it must have some kind of uh, I have it. It's called... The Art of Richard Thompson. The Art of Richard Thompson. It goes through how many revisions he would go through for his illustrations. And so while his work has what I would describe as a hasty quality, it is a very deliberate quality that went through like a tremendous amount of revisions. That uh, And he's, he speaks sometimes in his commentary to how many revisions it took to get to each strip. And I'm like, how do you have time to do revisions on strips? <laughs> I, I update weekly, and I don't have time for revisions, you know? And so it's it's a very practice, a very deliberate and careful thing, but I, I love it. I, mm-hmm. I love how sometimes you can see, like, the arc that describes Alice's face uh, goes the full circle, and then her nose will interrupt that line. I notice that, yeah. Mm. And it's just, it, it makes everything feel so fast. And I love how sometimes he'll describe motion by just drawing the person over and over and <laughs> overlapping those lines. Yeah. It's a brilliant affect. Um, the page that you just pulled up, uh, Kathleen, also reminded me that uh, something I really liked is the way he's able to convey, like, Alice's artwork as looking distinctive from the drawn artwork of the world but still feeling like part of the world. And that's really hard to do. Like I personally find for myself, if I was to draw a picture of someone drawing a picture, it would be really hard for that to feel like a different piece of art than the drawn world that I'm representing. And so I think he does a great job of giving Alice her own distinctive art style in the way he approaches it. And I think possibly I, what I pick up from, from Richard's work is that, He's really, really keenly observing what's going on around him. And I, I think, oh, he, he throws away lines here and there in his commentary. Like, kids have a weird way of walking when they're wearing snowsuits. 
<laughs> to think that he's just like their posture is funny, and so like when he's drawing a line of children in their snowsuits, I'm I'm examining these gestures and they don't look that different, but I can tell that he's trying to create this marshmallow type shape that causes children to walk funny, and so perhaps having had two daughters, he's examined what childlike mm. art looks like, and it's just a part of this broader observational quality that he brings to his work, and how he's able to distill it and yet cartoonify it so. Oh, uh, yeah. He's able to stretch it so far and yet not divorce it from his truth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a, a strip great um, where right. it's Alice making face. Oh, I was just gonna say Alice, that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Alice yeah. making faces in the mirror, and every face is. It looks like it, it could almost be a different cartoonist drawing yeah, his yeah, character. So off model, so vastly <laughs> different. Yeah, and they're so perfect. Yeah, because like yeah, that's that's a kid like stretching their face as far as it'll go. Yeah. <laughs> no, this I, I took a snapshot of this page because I just thought that showed his range as like a cartoonist really mm-hmm. well, and uh, I couldn't resist but also just earmark the the exchange between Petey and Alice in regards to comics. Oh yes, I used also on the back of the book. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I don't know if we should read that out or something, but yeah, we can include it. Below yeah. the podcast, I do. Yeah, it'll, be, yeah, it'll be it'll be linked to the the podcast. It's that's I thought that was really great. And uh, one really important character that we haven't talked about yet, though, is Mr. Danders. Yes, I like Mr. Danders. The class guinea pig, Doctor Danders. If oh, you will, I'm sorry. That's right. Okay, he doesn't actually have a doctor. He just feels <laughs> he, he feels he, he deserves. He's yeah. like you, John. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, you spent a lot of years in kindergarten. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Actually, I've spent enough time in school. I should have a doctorate. Um. Where's my honorary hamster degree? Yeah, I like how we draw skinny pigs. It's just this like box, <laughs> it's just this box shape with this huge nose. And... <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I love deep. that he uses comics as comics, so that a guinea pig talking doesn't seem weird. And there's so many things like that of things that are sort of like where it kind of breaks the fourth wall, or like there's a, a picture on a fridge that suddenly starts talking. It doesn't seem weird at all. This is just the the level of skill to be able to pull that off is quite something. Well, he he's created like a really fun world where you can just do stuff like that. You know, it's um, it's just a whimsical environment. Like the drawings are whimsical, the children themselves, like their observations of the world, are very whimsical. Like it, I I just found like I, I wasn't questioning anything in this book. It was just like very enjoyable. Because it was just very, just lovely. Just like, <laughs> lovely, fun comics. Like, I, I don't know, I didn't make as many notes uh, for this one because I just really enjoyed it. And my big note is like, it's good. I liked it. <laughs> um, another like, concrete and specific thing that I liked about this work is I really like the lettering. Mm. Um, I'm assuming it's hand-lettered. Yeah. It's just really, really nice. I don't think I have a good reason for that. It's just aesthetically very pleasing and uh, works well with the art. There's a, a very sad comment towards the end of my book, which is 300 pages deep, but it, under one of the last strips in the collection, it says, this is where the lettering starts to drift. Oh, Because yeah. it's, it's, lettering is probably one of the hardest parts of inking. Because mm-hmm. little variations can really dramatically affect the legibility of what's right. happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also uh, hired a colorist, or a colorist was given to him by the syndicate halfway through. Didn't he have a, an? He had an inker for part of the last year that he did this mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I don't know. Oh wow! But I don't think that lasted very long because the, at least according to the Wikipedia, the it says that he had an inker, Stacy Curtis, for the for t- 2012. But 2012 was also the year that he stopped cul-de-sac so yeah either things are going downhill too fast or or he just wanted to get to a certain stage and needed help to get to that last stage he was hoping he would be able to reach it himself and couldn't Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's so heartbreaking yeah i didn't i sort of when you suggest this book i was vaguely aware i think you'd mentioned like we should read this because he passed away recently so i kind of had that in the back of my head and as i was reading this i was like oh man like there's not gonna be more cul-de-sac this is it like (laughs) Yeah, and in that documentary you mentioned, the way he speaks about it is not like regrets for what he could have achieved. He says the characters had more to say. Mm, and yeah. it's, it's really, really sad. Mm-hmm. because it, and It's funny because the death of this comic almost coincides with the death of this art form. Yeah. Strip cartoon, yeah. they call this the last great strip cartoon. Uh, and it's not only because like no one else could possibly create another strip cartoon better than this, it's because as a medium it's gone. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was actually should, hoping should, we could spend a little bit of time maybe we, talking about the tragic state of newspaper comics. Should we talk about Stripped? Sure. sure. Yeah. So tell us a little bit we, about Stripped. Uh, so as part of the, I guess, research for this podcast, Jonathan, Kathleen, and I went to uh, our studio at Cloudscape Comics and we watched uh, the Stripped documentary again, uh, which the Stripped documentary is basically documenting the state of the strip cartoon medium, uh, the decline of newspapers, the decline of strip cartoons, and touches on then webcomics as maybe being the potential future uh, of strip comics. Is that... Yeah. 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 And it has a a wide range of cartoonists from a wide range of um, sources, so a lot of like really older, established newspaper comic strip artists, some younger newspaper comic strip artists, which I think is pretty interesting, too, because these are people I haven't even necessarily heard of, uh, and a lot of web cartoonists as well. And as a person who makes comics, I have to say this is one of the most feel-good movies about comics you can possibly watch. Like, every time I watch this movie, I feel like I need to go make some comics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really well um, put together, and you can tell it's just, like, made by someone who just really loves comics and wants to talk about them, and I don't, I, I'm and such a uh, sucker. Dave Kellett. Yeah. yeah. Dave Kellett, who is the creator of Sheldon, which is a modern web-based strip comic. Oh, yeah. yes. I'm, I'm such a sucker for anything that talks about our industry and our craft, and uh, I just eat that stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was, it was such a delight to watch that movie again. Very interesting. Yeah, it, it does a good job of conveying the sort of romantic period uh, back when strip strip comics were like a big deal and you had these giant tabloid-sized full-color pages that accompanied the newspaper and the lifestyle that those cartoonists lived and then transitioning into like where, where things are at now. And I don't know, strip cartoons are also, at least to me, like such an interesting part of the medium of comics because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's very, very different from my own goals in like comics and the comics I like to create Um, and it's very interesting to see like where people go and when they decide to stop and what they do afterwards like I think a couple weeks ago I was talking about Gary Larson with a friend and we were like what happened like is he still alive because I think I just assumed he was dead this is so horrible (laughs) but I looked him up and it's like oh no he just stopped doing the strip and he's doing other stuff now like he's just not making it anymore and it's like that's really really interesting oh and bill watterson as well like yeah. bill, bill watterson is the field completely yeah and Amazing. continues to live on and i hope in he's, peace and happiness he's oh, teaching sure. uh watercolors uh in like the community college in the small town he lives in is i believe what i i heard <laughs> i feel like he <laughs> swept into comics did what he needed to do made this amazing poignant piece of work and left and mm-hmm. said this is what you get Mm-hmm. And you can enjoy it as it is. And, and there's a lot to enjoy. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and in a way, even though Richard didn't exit in the same way, you can see it in... Or didn't exit by choice, let's say. Uh, you can see it in the same way. He oh, brought, I feel, a real maturity. He d- wasn't in the same state of mind as a lot of people who see strip cartooning as the quote-unquote big leagues of cartooning. He brought a mature artist perspective to it, where he's like, I have a story I wish to tell, and strip cartooning will be the medium I Mm. choose to bestow upon this story. Mm. It wasn't like the pinnacle of his achievement as work, Mm. because he was already a successful illustrator. Yeah, 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 that's interesting. I hadn't considered that. I didn't actually realize um, that he'd been an illustrator for so long before starting this. Yeah, I, I haven't read a Sunday comic in years, but like my first introduction to comics really was Sunday comics and it was Calvin and Hobbes. Like Bill Watterson was a big deal to my childhood. And I think uh, reading this really brought back those same feelings that I had reading Calvin and Hobbes. It kind of makes me want to read some Calvin and Hobbes now, actually, but, um, potential future trade. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's a thing that I haven't, I haven't really looked at in a long time. And it's, it's like a, it's a big step, I think, away from, a lot of the books that we've been looking at, because I think in this podcast we've been looking at um, a lot of more long-form narrative-type strips, whether it's an independent comic or like a DC comic or a manga. This is sort of like a book where really you could just pick up any one page and read it, and it's got a little beginning, middle, and end, and a payoff. And you know, it's it's this sort of different approach to storytelling, this different approach to the medium. It's sort of building it in these bite-sized chunks and not trying to do this 
larger sort of I mean there is like a narrative in the overall book but even that is like it's like a very subtle kind of build it's 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 not like leading up to some kind of major climax you know as you're reading it it's it's sort of like a refreshing uh palate cleanser in some ways I think um I'm not sure. I, th- I think even for kids today, there are a lot of kids who have exposure still to newspaper comics because their parents still get newspapers. Uh, not all kids, obviously, but like there are still enough kids that have access to newspapers that they are familiar with, say, Garfield or whatever other comics are in the newspaper. And it, it's such an easy entry point for so many people. I feel like as much as I'm excited about everything that's happening in comics now, because there's so much exciting stuff happening in comics now. We're in a golden age. Oh, mm. we really are. We're on, like, the cusp of something yeah. very amazing. We're on the cusp of a new golden age, I yes. mm-hmm. Yeah, but at the same time, we're kind of losing something. We're losing this newspaper venue. Like, the, the venue of newspapers was a great thing for comics. It's a ubiquitous medium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that just doesn't I, exist like there even, is no way you yeah. 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 I, e- even graphic novels, I would argue that something like Bone or Smile, like there are copies of these books in every classroom that I have taught in, and I've taught in a lot of classrooms. Uh, so it's kind of ubiquitous. You can find these books. I think 10 or 20 years from now, we're going to see a generation of cartoonists who all read Bone. Wow. A it's going to be, I know. brought up on Bone and Smile. Wow. It's going to be amazing. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think we're in the golden age now. Just no, wait. No, this is why I was saying we were on the cusp yeah. of a golden age. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, like, at the same time, like, even that's not quite as pervasive as, say, Garfield. Like, Garfield was, everybody in the English-speaking world knows Garfield. Not everybody in the English-speaking world knows Bone. Right. Yeah, that's right. totally true. And right. a really important point in how... Pretty much everyone had access to something as simple as Garfield, and Garfield was one of my first inspirations. Oh, yeah. absolutely! Yeah. The yeah. amount of Garfield fan art <laughs> tucked oh, away yeah. in boxes I and yeah. comics. No, I, oh, I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not being facetious at all. <laughs> uh, I my first strip cartoon was a cartoon about my cat, and that was my first autobio comic. I would draw <laughs> comics about funny things my cat did, and it was inspired oh. by Garfield. And so, having that, it, I didn't choose for this comic to come into my home. It just was in my home. Yeah. And so there's a huge, huge difference between the mediums you elect to bring in your home and the mediums that are just there. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that this is like a key difference and this is something that gets touched on in the strip documentary is that now we don't have this sort of one venue for all these things to exist. So in the past, you know, here is the comic strip section of the newspaper. All the comics have been gathered together here We've chosen the best of the best for you to peruse. You can find your favorite strip in here. Where now, like, all of the strips are spread out over the internet at different websites, different venues. And there was someone, I can't remember who it was in the documentary, but they were talking about someone sending him an email saying, you know, I don't really like comics, but I like what you're doing. Oh, that was Ryan North. Yeah, Ryan North. So, yes. And then he's like, no, no, you, you do like comics because I'm making a comic and you like what I'm doing. <laughs> you you don't have to like all comics, right? But because you like this comic, you do like comics. And there's that I find that I do notice this disconnect in people is that they they like read a web comic, but yeah, they don't self-identify as like, "Oh, I like comics." It's just like, "Well, no, I I just really like questionable content, and that's it." And everything else, I don't <laughs> No, I don't like comics though, right? It's or it's or a weird attitude, even. you They're know. Like, they they don't even <laughs> identify, say, cyanide and happiness or questionable content or XKCD. Right. They don't think of it as a comic. It's just a site I go to yeah. every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I work with uh, people who are, like, many decades older than me, and a lot of them are like, oh, I don't read comics. Like, I don't understand. I've had a coworker say to me, I do not understand the appeal of comics. Like, it doesn't make sense to me, which is totally legit. Like, it's just not part of her life. But then another coworker, like, pulling me over and showing me, like, an oatmeal comic, which is a comic, but she would not say that she reads comics. Oh, um, yeah. And it's, like, very... It's just something that showed up on her Facebook feed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think, like, there, there's value in that, though, because don't we want uh, to work in a medium that is pervasive enough that people don't even realize that they're reading it all the time? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I just think that it's it's shifted things where in the past you had a, f- a comic section 
And then within that, you would have, like, the best comic in that section, right? So, like, you'd get a, a Garfield or a Calvin and Hobbes would emerge because everyone's looking to this one source and then finding their favorite within that source, and then a majority of people are picking their, their one favorite, and you kind of get that, that one comic that maybe rises to the top, where I think now, because things are so sort of spread out, it's you can still attain, like you know like the oatmeal's incredibly successful but i think that that's all driven by the artist and i think that that's the big shift is that there isn't a big venue that you can like submit your work and sort of have it presented to the public and and maybe have people notice you you as the individual have to now like promote your work individually to the masses and get them to subscribe to your patron or whatever um, that's all on you now. There isn't like a syndicate or like a big publishing source for that. It's like which has definite positives and definite negatives. Yeah. Ramifications. I mean, yeah. this has been a discussion uh, ongoing in the Twitterverse, so to speak. Whereas the due to the lack of the syndicate, due to the lack of organizations similar to the syndicate and the role that the syndicate plays, the floor, or perhaps even the ceiling for no, well, maybe not the ceiling. Artists have been able to be very successful in this kind of go-your-own-way mm-hmm. situation, but the majority of artists, the majority of people who are working full-time artists get paid significantly less now. Mm-hmm. And it is no longer uh, perceived to be, whether it's true or not, it's no longer perceived to be a sustainable, viable career for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the Achilles heel in this golden age of comics that we are describing. And no one's making any money. Even graphic novelists... Like, oh, they, yeah. They're I not was, making very much. Like, reading an interview with um, Julian Tamaki, and, like, I would consider her one of the best cartoonists alive right now working, and she was saying, oh, yeah, I, I don't, like, make the majority of my money off of comics, which makes a lot of sense, because she is a freelance illustrator as well, and, like, does a lot of illustration work, but, you know, like... It, it's staggering. It, mm-hmm. Comics Eyes aren't, aren't going to do... Yeah. The epitome of the artist. Like, yeah. one of the best comic artists alive now like making some of the most amazing work in this medium like yeah yeah it's it's not just that the the new generation of cartoonists doesn't want to split their income with a syndicate it's that we can't afford to split our income with a syndicate like half my income gone i don't make enough as it is like i need that money yeah it's it's (laughs) um it's it's a real I don't know. I'm not sure if there's any easy answers, but I know that it's um, in the last couple of years, it was something that's very eye opening to me is like just talking to some of my friends who are, you know, quote unquote successful. And their the cause of their success involves like 14 hour work days and never going out and never talking to their friends and like subsisting on a very meager income from like a part-time job that they use to pay the rent so they can facilitate like spending the rest of their time on these 14 hour days to get these comics done. And this is, these are people that are working for publishers, people that are working for like image comics or like bongo comics or something. It's just like that the amount of effort that needs to go in and it's crazy to me. Like the, the... I live with someone <laughs> who that's their reality is like they are working in comics and they have to have other jobs too. And yeah. like it's they're working for a major publisher doing lettering and um, the amount that my roommate works. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like she is one of the hardest working people I know. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's like... necessarily that the publishers are taking all your money. I'm not sure they're making that much money either. It's a question of the pie. So I I was, well, the size of the pie, I mean. I was reading another article about uh, comics, comic book resources, the website, Mm -hmm. which recently rebranded to CBR. And there was a takedown article from someone who was one of the foundational members of comic book resources saying how, oh, you know, they've changed their website and now all of the content is about these superhero movies and TV shows not about comic books themselves. And it was really interesting how this article attributed that to the fact that it is impossible to make enough money focusing yourself on comics, even as a journalist. There just Mm. isn't enough of a pie. And again, like it goes back to this ubiquity of the medium. Is it because strip comics laid this foundation of comics should be free and just kind of there? Like, what what is it that created this ubiquitous medium that almost anyone can enjoy? 
and yet it's just been decided to be something that is not deserving of remuneration for whatever reason. Mm. <laughs> like there's there's kind of two industries happening at the same time. There's there's a the internet as an industry, and I don't think anyone makes a lot of money on the internet except for like uh, I don't know the big dot coms or whoever. I'm not sure that's true. I okay. would say blogging is easier to make money at than cartooning. Okay, I think it's because there's less time. Maybe. Yeah, and perhaps. overhead. Yeah, perhaps. It, I I don't. I haven't cracked this one. I spent quite a bit of time studying bloggers, and the ways that bloggers make their money. Because I thought surely there must be some secret. To this. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah, must yeah, be yeah. a trick. Yeah. And it's been really interesting. And it's just a lot. Uh, it's, it's a different world. Yeah. It's a but, completely different world, yeah. and I can't quite put my finger. I don't. On. I don't have. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say. I don't. I don't have numbers, but I mean, I know like on YouTube there are. Like, for every, like, success story where someone's, like, quit their day job and is running their YouTube channel, there's, like, a thousand other people putting content on YouTube and not making Mm -hmm. the money they need to quit their day job. Like, it's in a way, it's like just with the Internet, everyone has access, but now you have to stand out in this giant crowd of voices. So getting that notoriety and getting that, like, fan base to... Make, an, make a living is, I think, harder for everyone, whether it's, like, in video or audio or, or comics. Well, I think, like, the Internet is basically a phone call. How do you make money off a phone call? You can't. Like, every time you download a website, like, not a, it doesn't necessarily come off a phone line anymore, but it's the, it fulfills the same function as a phone call, where you call the website, they send you information. I don't, I don't know how you make money off that. But, I mean, it's not necessarily better in publishing. Publishing, you would think you're producing a physical product, and then you have a limited supply of the physical product, and you sell a physical product. You'd think there'd be money in that? I'm not sure there's a lot of money in any part of book publishing. Well, not on the just other comics. hand, I paid 13 bucks for a digital version of this book. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Although this one was uh, said to be 50, the print edition, okay. in the commentary. Then, yeah. I mean, I, I think these structures are going to change. And I mean, a different way of looking at this larger field. You can say the same number of people are succeeding versus failing. Mm. Think of all the people who applied to the syndicate and failed. Mm, right. It's just the difference is that they have their their ceiling. If you don't get accepted by the syndicate, is zero. Right. Whereas your ceiling as a web cartoonist of middling success is almost a sustainable income. Right. Right. Maybe it's yeah. you know a successful part time yeah. job. Yeah. Mm. Which is a big difference, and there's no. a huge power shift there. Right. Yeah, yeah, Whereas, no. like, the voices that have access and the gatekeeper relationships are completely right. different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so I, would, I, yeah, I wouldn't say that the internet broke it. But <laughs> I would say that we haven't yet figured out the way to make the livelihoods for the people creating the content possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I yeah. think there's, like, a, a money-moving-around problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, all the money is moving to the internet provider. Yeah. Well, and no, not only that, there's just, you know, as we you, you made a, a, a crack about sharing your income with the syndicate, I think I'll, a lot of us on planet Earth just don't have enough money overall. <laughs> yeah, <there> you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> even if it's our quote-unquote responsibility to contribute to the artist, not that many people have that much mm-hmm. income mm-hmm. to spread around. Yeah. All right, mm-hmm. we're going to run out of time. Uh, so final thoughts. That was kind thoughts. of a diversion of discussion. That's, it was a good discussion. <laughs> yeah. uh, and final thoughts on Richard Thompson's cul-de-sac. Why aren't you reading it right now? <laughs> yeah, really. You should have turned this podcast off a while ago when we started to diverge to go <laughs> get this book and read it. Um, <laughs> it's a delight. Uh, if you if you find the complete cul-de-sac, I really do recommend it. Richard's commentary is brilliant. Uh, so he goes into these asides for occasion, like, oh, this is when I was rushing, or this is when, uh, I was being really lazy, but I also love these parts where he's like, this tie-tying pose took some work, let's all admire it for a bit. (laughs) And then later on on the page, he's like, the last panel wasn't too easy either, you know, stop reading so fast. (laughs) He's like, let's just stop to admire this bush, this bush was really hard to draw. So, recommend that edition. Yeah, that sounds good, I, I sort of wish that was in my book. Oh, go for it. All right, maybe I, I will. When, when I got this book, I um, oh, I also wanted—I haven't had a chance to say this yet—that I've been buying my Trade Waiters books off the Chapters Indigo website hmm. as an alternative to Amazon. If you are looking for an alternative to Amazon, and you're Canadian because it doesn't work outside Canada, <laughs> but uh, basically you can get a book shipped to one of their stores for free, and then you just walk in and take it. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Which, like, even Abbotsford has a bookstore you can go to where you can order a book in and you can, like, walk in and get a book. 
That's nice. And it's a Canadian company. Like, uh, 15 years ago, Canadian publishers absolutely hated chapters because of the, they were a big box store. But now, everyone loves them because it's better than the alternatives. <laughs> Actually, that's well, that's better than Amazon where you have to you know, go to some <laughs> shop that's out of your way because the parcel came on like a Wednesday yeah. afternoon while you're at work and you got to <laughs> wait 48 hours to pick it up from the sh- wherever. Yeah, I'd, Anyways, I'd love to go to a store. The, the story I actually wanted to tell was that when I picked this up from the, the bookstore, the, the woman who worked there took a look at it and obviously it's a newspaper comic and she says, oh, I haven't heard of that one. And it's like, it's kind of sad because this is such a good comic and it's, in the medium that should be ubiquitous. By definition, it's a newspaper comic. It should be in every newspaper. I don't think it's in any newspapers locally. I've never well, seen it anymore. in a newspaper. It's, it's, it's over. Well, that too. So it's not being re-syndicated, but what was striking to me is that there is no intersection during the time period when I had a newspaper that I was able to experience this work. Yeah. It came so many years after I stopped subscribing to newspapers. And it's kind of, oh, it's a hidden gem, let's yeah. say. Yeah. Pro- gem Province and Sun have always made poor choices for what strips they pick I think up. most newspapers do, though. Yeah. Um, no, we always got the Globe and Mail, which did not have the best selection. <laughs> I mean, I'm fond of what was in it because of nostalgia, but whenever I was at somebody else's house for the weekend and they got this Toronto Star and they actually had Sunday comics, um, or Saturday comics, I guess. Anyways, this book was a delight, so charming, like, 11 out of 10 would recommend. I have to go out and read more of this because... There's no one I wouldn't recommend. It, <laughs> it's just so full of heart and humor and love and care. And, oh, it's just exquisite. Okay. Yeah, thank, thanks for the recommendation, John. Uh, I am richer for knowing of Cul-de-Sac. Uh, <laughs> it's a great book. Like I say, it's kind of rekindled my interest in... In Sunday comics, it made me think about sort of those original comics I read as a kid, and so I would say, yeah, like this is a great comic for everyone. In fact, if you if you want to be subversive and get some like maybe you have nephews and nieces and you want them to start loving comics, then get sit them down, start reading Cul de Sac to them, and like start <laughs> them you're there. Not find comics in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about the newspaper. Just read 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 them Cul de Sac. Yeah. Maybe yeah. transition from that into some Calvin and Hobbes. You, you know, go. yeah. Kids still love Calvin and Hobbes because they know they're the collected works. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So uh, our next book is going to be Ghosts by Raina Telgemeier, latest looking. graphic novel. I'm looking forward to this. That juggernaut in the industry. Ooh. <laughs> um, so should, should we say we... who we are and our oh, shout-outs? Right. Yes. Um, I'm Jonathan Dalton. Uh, you can find my work at uh, www.phobos-comic.com. And uh, my shout-out is going to be... Um, I mentioned on a previous episode that I felt like there was this breakout genre of magical girl comics as written by North Americans. And I, so I have another example of that uh, called Shattered Starlight by Nicole Chartrand. Uh, It's only about 30 pages in, uh, so I don't know much about the story yet, but it looks really interesting. It's basically, the characters are adults who had been magical girls in their past, and are now kind of retired, in quotation marks, (laughs) and what do they do with the rest of their lives? Interesting. (laughs) I like that. I still don't have a (laughs) shout-out. But uh, I'm Angela Mellick. You can find my work at wastedtalent.ca. I've been head down. My shout-out is for Tumblr. In general. <laughs> There's <laughs> comics on Tumblr. There's comics on Tumblr, and I'm always right. watching for what the Utes are doing. There you go. <laughs> Those Utes, they're, they're up and coming. Watch out. All right. Uh, so I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at jeff-ellis.ca. And uh, I've been reading more of uh, Miles Morales' Spider-Man, and I think it's great. I think it's way better than... Regular Peter Parker. Peter Parker Spider Man is boring. You should read Miles Morales Spider Man. It's great. <laughs> um, I'm Kay Gross, and you can find my currently updating webcomic Lunar Maladies at lunarmaladies.com. And I think my shout out this week is going to thematically tie in with our discussion about uh, making money off comics current day. I've been listening to a lot of the Dirty Old Ladies podcast recently. Oh, that's the one which that Spike is, does. Yeah, it's Spike Trotman, Kel Mac- uh, McDonald, and um, Amanda oh. Lafreniere. Mm. Um, 
and Ed is really interesting to listen to those women talk comics. Uh, it is my, like, I need to sit down and work podcast, because every time I listen to it, I think I need to work harder. <laughs> um, but they very recently had an episode about full-time versus part-time, and um, sort of uh, picking each other's brains on that, and it was very interesting. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in their Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at www.cloudscapecomics.com, tradewaiters.tumblr.com, as well as Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, and all other purveyors of fine podcasts. At least all the ones we've been able to find.